0: We'll Hello, and welcome to episode 9 of Fax Machine. I'm here with Rob and Noah, perceiving what I believe to be reality, though it may actually be an exquisitely detailed and complex computer simulation in which humans are unwitting objects of study or entertainment, or worse, all while maintaining the notion that we are conscious beings with choice and agency when in truth we're mere mindless embodiments of the codes and scripts dictated by an omnipotent, technologically superior race of alien puppet masters. So as you might have guessed, today we're talking about conspiracy theories, <laughs> but don't get too excited because we're talking about boring conspiracy theories. That was
1: very impressive. Really? Yeah, yeah that was very good. That was like a spoken word intro.
0: <laughs> now that we've finished our and, dramatic monologue portion. And on portion. the first take, too, that was very <laughs> yeah. impressive.
1: Yeah. Okay, wait, wait, what is the theme again? (laughs)
0: So, the theme for this week is boring conspiracy theories. Okay. So, we're going to present, discuss, and hopefully not be gullible enough to believe the facts that are on the more mundane side that we have in store, and per usual, we'll conclude with a pub-style trivia quiz that is loosely inspired by the theme. So on a quick tangent, if you guys like what you hear, which if you don't, then just turn this off and go away. But if you guys like what you hear, then please uh, drop us a rating, (laughs) preferably five stars, because that's what we're shooting for.
1: Please. We we need it so bad. Um, You would think that maybe we're adults who are self-assured and have enough self-confidence, but you'd be wrong. We really, really want those five stars, all five of them, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. Also, to my Uber drivers, I'd really like five stars, so if you're listening, (laughs) I would like that. That sounds like a tall order, but you can give us five stars, because we are better than Rob as an Uber passenger. Oh. (laughs) That's probably true. So I want to railroad this for a second
2: to say that we've finally surpassed the benchmark set by George Lucas. Despite a 40-year head start, we've reached episode nine first, Star Wars. (laughs) We did it, guys. Take that.
0: (laughs) On that note, let's put on those tinfoil hats and get things started. Rob, what have you got for us?
2: All right. Well, this week, I looked into the fact that at Starbucks, the baristas are misspelling your name on purpose. Dun,
1: dun, dun. Dun,
2: dun. Yes. So the exposition of this fact actually dates back to an internet um, video that was posted in 2014 by a comedian explaining why it would be in Starbucks' best interest to spell your name wrong. And this went on the internet for a couple of years, kind of bouncing around between uh, irreputable sources until all of a sudden in 2016, it got picked up and people ran with it. So a new internet video came out and then sources like Huffington Post, um, the Daily News and even the Today Show started running pieces about how Starbucks was spelling your name wrong because your reaction as a millennial was to take a picture of it and put it on social media, which would support the brand of
1: Starbucks. That's very similar to what people think about the Coca-Cola advertisement, where all the bottles have a different name on it, and the idea is if you see your name on the bottle or your friend's name, you're going to post a picture of it, and all of a sudden Coca-Cola is everywhere during that campaign. Yeah.
2: I mean, interestingly, I did once buy a bottle of Coke for my friend Dan, just because it said Dan on it, and he did not ask for
1: a Coke. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the thing, Dan's not that uncommon of a name, like... If you're, it's, if, you're, if, you're if you find impressed. like if you find like a Coke bottle that's like I would be very impressed if you found a Coke bottle that was like Adolf. Like, <laughs>
0: like
1: I mean you should hide it, but I mean I think it would be notable
2: enough. I'm sure. They're in the boardroom and they were going through the list and they're like so one guy was like, But come on, Adolf? Couldn't we? And then everyone else was like, No oh, Adolf, yeah. we can't. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but so I, I'm wondering, the longest version or the shortest version of all of our names is no more than five letters. Have any, has anyone present ever had their name misspelled at Starbucks? Well, I don't
1: have... Uh, I don't often have my name misspelled on paper. Mm-hmm. What I do have is this very strange thing that has happened to me. I think when I was... Earliest time, I must have been like 13 or 14 years old, all the way up until today. I mean, not not literally today, but it, <laughs> it happened, you know, within the last couple months. It has happened regularly since then. Someone, say, at a fast food place or even maybe a Starbucks might say, uh, and what's your name? And I'll say, Noah... And then they'll say, Miller? (laughs) And I don't know what it is about the name Noah. that It has happened so many independent times across the country. Uh, Like, people continually mistake my name for the name Miller. Wow.
0: That's very odd. That's that's a very
1: Yanni Laurel kind of issue. It is a little bit. Yeah, it
0: is. Ah.
2: So I've had some mild misspellings of Starbucks. Very commonly I get Ron, actually. And that,
1: that's probably my I can see you as a Ron. I
2: don't know. I don't They're feel like Ron. <laughs> or more, more <laughs>
1: relevantly to the podcast, I feel like listeners could probably hear you as a Ron. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is a Ron voice for sure. <laughs> Why did you change your voice? <laughs> put on your, like, your sexy voice for yeah. Ron he's he's the, just, Ron, Ron sound like this. <laughs> this, is, this is like a Steve Stefan article kind of situation. <laughs> I'm also not sure what it says about me that I thought that was a sexy
0: voice. <laughs> 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 it's a little
1: hurtful. Ooh. <laughs> Ron, I'd quite like to meet this Ron.
2: But my my favorite personal experience with Starbucks, I have this when talking to people in public. I have this tendency to say, "Uh, I don't know if you you've ever done that." But so well, I, well, I edit this podcast. So I'm well familiar with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so someone would say like, "What's your name?" And I'd go, "Uh, Rob." And I've got. A-Rod once. a rod (laughs) Rod. (laughs) That's That's awesome. And I was like, I know they know that's not my name, but I'm glad that they did it anyway.
0: (laughs) Actually, I will say, thinking about it, I almost wish that Starbucks would mess up my name more because there are so many Emilys that if anything, I run into the problem more frequently that they'll call an Emily and there will be two other ones in the store trying to claim the same drink. (laughs) And I've had it happen before even where they'll figure it out and start adding... um, uh, last names, or at least last initials, and I've been in a situation where there have been two Emily C's ordering <laughs> similar drinks, and I'm like, the, why? <laughs> why?
2: But it has become kind of a meme of our time that Starbucks is going to misspell your name. Um, and I think, to, to a certain degree, there are baristas who really embrace this culture and who have written you know, personal accounts of, I'm a Starbucks barista and I did this on purpose. And they're, they're kind of <laughs> funny, uh, but the majority, having spoken actually to a couple of Starbucks baristas... Uh, In preparation for this podcast, there is no mandate from the Starbucks Corporation saying you should misspell names. No managers in New York City Starbucks that I've talked to, and that's two, recommend (laughs) misspelling (laughs) names. And baristas typically don't really care anymore. Um, And the interesting other thing is now, if you use your credit card, they won't even ask you your name. They'll pull it on your data and print it on a label. Mm -hmm. So this kind of circumvents the whole the whole issue unfortunately so we're in the we're in the the kind of dusk of uh, misspelled Starbucks
1: cups and I'm sorry to say so I have actually another utterly boring Starbucks conspiracy theory and that is that friends the TV show was secretly an advertising campaign to help Starbucks expand into every corner so to speak of our lives what is the evidence Rachel's surname is green the main color of Starbucks logo Geller as in Ross and Monica Geller is derived from the German word Gellen, meaning one who yells, and Starbucks baristas yell out your name, incorrectly written, as we've learned, oh my God. <laughs> when your order is ready. <laughs> okay. Finally, this theory contends that friends is all a ploy to lure people away from hanging out in bars like in the show Cheers and move people toward hanging out at coffee shops. Because after Cheers ended, main character Fraser Crane moved from Boston to Seattle, which is, wait for it, the home of Starbucks. (laughs) Jeez. Yeah. Uh,
0: (laughs) Cheers, where everybody knows your name, versus Starbucks, where everyone spells it wrong. Nice.
2: (laughs) So the last thing I found, People Magazine actually collected a list of celebrities who've been to Starbucks and had their names spelled wrong. Um, and a lot of this actually, I wouldn't say, is, is misspelling, but this is more kind of taking advantage of being at a Starbucks when someone famous walks in. Um, so, the collection I have here is uh, Victoria Beckham walked into a Starbucks, and her son uh, Romeo posted on social media uh, a cup that just said posh. <laughs> <laughs> good. Uh, Reese Witherspoon went to a Starbucks, and they wrote grease on it. <laughs> <laughs> And then my personal, my personal favorite, because, um, because of my swimming ties, Michael Phelps went with his wife and one of their friends to a Starbucks, and the cups came out, and it said, friend of goat, wife of goat, <laughs> and goat.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Noah, I'll toss it over to you.
1: This week I learned that there is a theory that elevator close buttons don't actually do anything and that their purpose is to let people perceive a sense of control in their lives so that they don't spiral into depression." Hmm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Noble. (laughs) So, the funny thing about this conspiracy theory is that it happens to be mostly true. Um, Elevators definitely used to have a functional button that allowed passengers to close the elevator doors at will. However, when the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, was passed in 1990, The law changed to require that elevator doors had to stay open long enough for anyone on crutches or in a wheelchair or using a cane to get on board comfortably. So the older elevators with working door close buttons were to be phased out, and since the average lifetime of an elevator is about 25 years, most of them have likely been replaced by newer elevators that don't have a working door close button. So why even have one at all? Well, it's not that the door close buttons can't work, it's just that you aren't special enough to have access to it really it's there so that people like firefighters and building maintenance staff can access it by using a special key but for you and me it's not going to work when you press it so i remember
2: in college learning the trick of holding the door close button and then the floor you wanted and you're supposed to get an express ride to the floor does that what? actually work Never so heard of i think that. again it depends on the age of the elevator and and here's the thing i use it in my building currently to do laundry <laughs> cuz no cuz <'cause>, okay <laughs> I should first say, the laundry's in the basement of my building, okay. so I have to go from my floor to the basement to do laundry. And I hate being stopped by people on the first floor, who then, like, try to get on and then say, like, oh, I, like, for whatever reason, want to go up, but press down, or something. And so I press the door close and the basement button, and I go right to the basement. Now, this is this is not a scientific approach, <laughs> necessarily, to doing
1: this. I just know that every time I've done it, I've gone directly to the basement. Okay, this uh, might come back a little bit later when we talk about placebo. <laughs> um, it just and, uh, makes me feel better. Yeah, it's working. So remember that. Remember how the second part of my fact was that it gives people this sense of agency and control over their lives. <laughs> so <laughs> let's 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 talk about that for a minute. I feel like most people suspect that their door closed button doesn't really work, and yet every time I'm on an elevator, I press it. And I see other people do it anytime I'm not close enough to press it. (laughs) So what is it about fruitlessly mashing this vestigial remnant of a less accessible time that keeps us coming back for more? According to Dr. Ellen J. Langer, professor of psychology at Harvard University, who studies the illusion of control, said in an interview with the New York Times, perceived control is very important. It diminishes stress and promotes well-being. In the same piece, her colleague at Drexel University, Dr. John Cunios, said, quote, a perceived lack of control is associated with depression, so perhaps this is mildly therapeutic. Effectively, we like pressing the button because it gives us a placebo effect. We get a subtle but pleasant surge of dopamine when we do something we expect to be helpful, even when we know it isn't. It's some weird behavioral conditioning stuff. Normally, doing something that doesn't produce an expected effect wouldn't result in that action being reinforced, but in an elevator, The door always closes eventually. So it may be that in the door-close-button situation, since the action of closing the door is always followed by the door closing, even if pressing the button did nothing to hasten it, our brains are just like, good job, guys. We just closed the living shit out of that elevator. (laughs) (laughs) And as far as I'm concerned, even if it is a placebo, there's no harm to it. At the end of the day, you should do whatever you need in order to keep your spirits elevated. (laughs) There we go. See, I think it's a—it's
2: kind of a jerk test because you know the guy who's standing in the elevator and he sees you coming and he
1: jams the door <laughs> close button
2: even though it's not going to do anything. But now
1: you know his true intents. I mean, don't worry, Rob. Those people are going to see you in the laundromat eventually. <laughs> <laughs> not if I don't let them in. <laughs> so I did. I
2: heard about the door close floor express conspiracy in college. But I did look up other conspiracy theories about elevators, which I shouldn't even call conspiracy theories. A lot of them were kind of programmed into early elevators. Um, So most elevators, like you said, have the emergency key. Some elevators though, didn't have an emergency key when they were first created. And so I found out very old elevators that don't have a key have a, a digital or a numeric code that puts them into operator mode. And so if you press three keys at the same time, that can activate operator mode. Wow. And your building super will know what it is. So if you don't see a key, you might be
1: able to either ask or guess what your three key combo is. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, it's not like, I mean, you could probably just try all the combinations, right? Because it's I mean, not it depends like where el- you live. It's not like an iPhone. Your yeah. elevator's not going to lock you out. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's like frozen. <laughs> I'm sorry, Rob. You've tried too many combinations as it hurtles to the ground and smashes into the bottom of the shaft. <laughs>
2: So, <laughs> it's a low-stakes game. So what you're saying, is I can't
1: so let you do that, Rob. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> the other,
2: the other thing I found that I had never heard of before, which I'm really interested in in trying, is if someone presses the wrong floor, which I think has happened to all of us, and especially if it's between the floor you're on and the floor you're going to, it can be very annoying. Apparently, there are several ways, depending on what type of elevator it is, to undo a pressed button. So, um, depending on the elevator model you have, it may include pressing the button five times in a row quickly, Ooh. Oh. pressing the button twice with the door open button, holding mm. that floor and the door open button down for five seconds. So, these are all things, uh, like,
1: I mean, <laughs> you're rarely going to be in an elevator, have the time to look it up and try it. But. What, what concerns me about that is that surely holding the door open button and that down for five seconds takes longer than just going to the floor.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean... <laughs> That's a fair point.
2: But if people are still loading, if you're, they're filing in and you have the time, nice right. I would try it.
0: And you can then avoid <laughs> the awkward moment of having the doors open on that floor and you just stand in the elevator expect, expectantly while someone else is there waiting for you to get out and you're like, no. And then you... <laughs> <laughs> then I, you're, I'm sorry. you I've, I've made this terrible for both of us. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you're obligated to lean forward and press the door closed <laughs> button. <for> <laughs> <listening>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you just look up like
1: I know it doesn't work
0: (laughs) so related to your fact I uh, opted to look into other everyday placebos Uh, that are built into the technology that we encounter in our lives. And one of them that I found was the loading bar that you see on your computer whenever you download a program or open a website. So prior to to 1995, computers actually didn't have this familiar loading bar that we're used to seeing. Um, Instead, they had more static icons like little clocks or hourglasses um, and even a little Buddha to signify the patience that you should have. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And those would show up when uh, various time-consuming processes would take place. Uh, Without giving you an idea, of their progress. So they were just called Busy Indicators, and they would just sit there to tell you to wait for an indefinite amount of time. Um, But in that same year, um, a computer science grad student uh, named Brad A. Myers published a paper called The Importance of Percent Done Indicators for Computer Human Interfaces. So he developed what was essentially the first loading bar and turned 50 of his classmates into guinea pigs.
1: So he was also a sorcerer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. Please please continue.
0: <laughs> So, uh, as he wrote in this paper, uh, 86% of his classmates actually liked having that loading bar present while they searched through a database, uh, even if the animation didn't accurately match the pacing of their search. Uh, and this principle holds true today. Progress bars only exist to dissuade us from uh, basically going office space on our computers. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and... I, my
1: reference for that would always be Zoolander. The files are inside the computer. Oh,
0: yeah. Oh, <laughs> Where
1: yeah. They're yeah. they, yeah. like, oh, it's so simple. The files are inside. Inside the computer and then they (laughs) smash it and they're like, where are the files? (laughs) What year was this paper published or what what
2: year did people decide that like the the progress bar actually matters?
0: Oh, this was this was also 1985
2: So So this is when so the the spinning wheel of death like still
0: exists. So that's the funny thing Yeah, so we still not all not all progress bars actually show progress or simulated progress because I
2: distinctly remember whatever computer it was when I was in like elementary school that had the hourglass that just mm-hmm. flipped over and over again like with no no stop and it didn't matter how much sand fell through it was just gonna flip and it was the worst thing in the world.
0: Yep. Yeah. So those actually uh, in the biz are referred to as throbbers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what biz are you talking about?
0: <laughs> you know. But no, oh, you
2: good. you were saying throbbers. <laughs>
0: But yes, they are the alternative to progress bars, Um, which, as I said, don't actually show progress only because it's pretty impossible to measure. Um, During a download, any fluctuations in your download speed or the strength of your internet connection, um, even the traffic on the file server that you're downloading from will change that pacing. And in actuality, it's really difficult to actually take all of those factors into account. So that progress bar just kind of moves along and just gives you the sense that, you know, you can plan your life around this process over which you have no control when you actually can't.
1: So I thought it would also be good to talk a little bit about the placebo effect in other contexts. So um, you guys know sort of placebo effect most commonly talked about where maybe you're trying a drug. Uh, there's something about just taking a pill or receiving an injection that has this innate you know, uh, quality where it can act as an analgesic. You might have some sort of short-term response uh, if you're really treating a disease. But it's not just humans, for example, uh, that experience this effect. A 2010 study in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine found that the placebo effect also happens in dogs. 80% of dogs with epilepsy who were given a placebo had a reduction in seizure frequency compared with baseline. And 30% had a reduction in seizure frequency greater than 50%. So that's pretty significant. Wow. Another interesting thing is that you were able to placebo yourself drunk. Researchers at Victoria University in New Zealand tricked 148 students into believing that they were drinking vodka in order to study the placebo effect. Quote, we have made people's memory worse by telling them that they were intoxicated even when they had nothing stronger than plain flat tonic water with
0: limes. Boy, placebo alcohol is really going to save me money in my bar tab. This is <laughs> <Yeah. great>. <laughs> <laughs> Noah, uh, so my fact for this week uh, or i guess rather the conspiracy that i learned about was that fondue's reputation as a world famous staple of swiss cuisine was completely manufactured by the now defunct swiss cheese union an organization which can be accurately defined as and i kid you not a cheese cartel Ooh. Wow. yeah so we'll see i'm, I'm hoping that'll be narco season 4 you know material but we'll see what netflix says
1: Oh, I'm ooh. trying so hard to think of a pun for this. Oh. See something. you can see my face contorted. Just, uh, uh, <laughs> just Ooh, so, ooh, 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 narqueso, narqueso, yes! narqueso. <laughs> <laughs> narqueso.
0: Please continue. Coming please. to a streaming right. service near you. All right, so, so this story begins in the wake of World War One, when most of Europe was, as you'd imagine. Pretty fucked up.
1: Right. <laughs> so, that so means accurate. It's not
0: wrong. <laughs> Switzerland, on the other hand, was less so, uh, having been neutral as is their way historically. Um, but even they were facing an almost comically stereotypical dilemma, uh, which was that they had an overabundance of cheese, coupled with a dwindling demand for it from their European neighbors. So into this scene entered the Swiss Cheese Union, or as it is known in Swiss German, vaguely, uh, the Schweizer Käse Union. Yeah. It's eh. pretty good. Okay. I believe it. All right. Uh, so which formed with government backing after a bunch of cheesemakers decided that something needed to be done to ameliorate their overproduction and plummeting sales.
1: It was very serious. They were in dairy straits. Oh, jeez. Yeah, right. right. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, jeez.
0: <laughs> uh, so the initial approach taken by the Swiss Cheese Union to fix this problem was to reduce competition among cheesemakers by setting some ground rules, namely in the way of price fixing, uh, capping production, and limiting the types of cheeses that could be made to seven varieties, the most popular of which uh, were Gruyere and Emmental. And this strategy helped things for a while, that is, until the Swiss cheese market was struck another blow by World War II, uh, and the rationing that went along with it. So, yet again, uh, the Swiss cheese union found themselves drowning in an excess of cheese, and perhaps realizing that drowning things in cheese could in fact be the solution they were looking for the whole time. (laughs) The only solution
1: I want to any of my problems.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They they saw you coming. (laughs) They began a decades-long marketing campaign promoting a cheese Based food that they could easily sell by the bucket. Fondue. <laughs> (laughs) Mm. So to clarify briefly, uh, cheese fondue did exist as a regional dish in Switzerland for a long time prior to this campaign. Variations of it have been around since the 18th century and it was mostly localized to the Western French-speaking part of the country. And actually the word fondue itself comes from the French fondre, uh, which means to melt. However, the idea of fondue as a delicious gooey symbol of Swiss heritage on a national and later international scale took off in the 1930s with the Swiss Cheese Union's marketing efforts. And through these efforts, the popularity of fondue spread well, like liquid cheese, um, at home <laughs> slowly, <laughs> Slow, slowly, the, the and high viscosity. So at home in Switzerland, uh, the union doled out cackelons, uh, which is the pot that fondue was served in, in ingredients to military regiments, event organizers, and even mailed recipes to every household in the country. Efforts to popularize it abroad included its introduction to America at the Swiss pavilion of the 1964 New York World's Fair, and ad campaigns in the 70s branded fondue as a healthful treat consumed by groups of young, hip, and rosy-cheeked Alpine skiers captioned with slogans like Fondue creates a good mood. It even paved the way for the popularization of chocolate fondue, uh, which itself was invented to promote consumption of... Chocolate? (laughs) Yes. Specific Swiss chocolate product.
2: Oh, um, uh, the mountain... uh, Tolerone.
0: Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Very good. Um, And in my favorite example of their marketing prowess... The Swiss Cheese Union, as official sponsors of the Swiss National Ski Team in the early 90s, designed their outfits to look like Emmental. <laughs> um, so I'll post to the gram, but these outfits were just literally bright yellow spandex unitars with a holy cheese pattern, <laughs> and they looked ridiculous. That's amazing. It was great.
2: It's kind of amazing, like, the the similarities between this cheese cartel and our own American dairy cartel. What? Yeah. That's right. Here's the real conspiracy. You, you think dairy? you found the only dairy cartel? <laughs> so what's going on? Th- this this all has a lot of parallels to um, U.S. government cheese. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. As a as a yeah, we have cheese stockpiles. Yeah, yeah we we have strategic oh. stockpiles of cheese. Um, And so the the history of government cheese in America is actually amazing. It actually happened under the Carter administration in the seventies. They made the decision that they would buy any cheese that cheese producers in America could make and keep it for the government. And there's, there's a singular purpose to do this and it is Mm -hmm. to support a a related industry. And so the government milk. Yeah. Yeah. And support farmer milk farmers. But the idea was by reducing the supply of cheese available, or I guess artificially increasing demand by the government, milk producers have to produce more milk in a given year and then the price of milk would go up and then milk would be sold for more and dairy farmers would be better off. And this was pretty much true. That economic model worked. The problem was the U.S. government was buying out tons and tons of cheese and then storing it in warehouses, storage facilities, and actually primarily caves where they would keep the cheese. And then they would basically hang on to it, waiting for a time in which they could sell it. And this went on for many years until uh, under the Carter administration this happened. And then maybe 20 years later, the government came to a reckoning to say, we have all this cheese and it's really not holding up so good and we have to figure out what to do with it. And they started selling it off at extremely discounted rates as government cheese, um, (laughs) which was slightly remelted and packaged cheddar-like cheese products um, that have come to have their own (laughs) cult following in America. And so it's unlike most other cheese because it's so uniquely kind of, it's old, it's stored, it's been remelted and reblocked and kind of repackaged. Um, But people have a real affinity for it. And so it makes a lot of uh, appearances in like particularly rap songs and like pop culture. But uh, government cheese is the U.S. government's cheese cartel. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
0: Can we go back to these cheese caves? Yeah. Because um, where, <laughs> where and why and were there like stalactites of just cheese dripping down? I know there aren't, but I, I just want to imagine like there It wasn't like Willy Wonka designed the caves. It was just,
2: <laughs> <laughs> The caves were already there <laughs> so and we just filled them from the bottom with cheese. With cheese. <laughs> um, I'll, actually, I'll refer you both actually to a, an NPR Planet Money podcast that talked about government cheese um, oh, cool. and did an excellent job describing it much better than I just did. But they, they interviewed... I think it was near Oklahoma City, uh, the manager of a cave of cheese. And he said, I forget that the, the, the metric weight of cheese was staggering. Um, but it was like two and a half football fields worth of cheese stacked several stories high. Wow. Wow! Yeah. And just, just absolutely unbelievable. And then at this point it's all gone. It's all been kind of cut up and sent out as government cheese. And so that cave is now, the government is no longer renting it out. It's now available if you want it, for your double football games or (laughs) whatever you want. (laughs) We should
1: not keep sending youth sports groups into caves. This is not going well. (laughs) Have we not learned (laughs) our lesson?
2: But the thing that kind of pairs up with the creation of government cheese, interestingly, Mm -hmm. um, because the government then kind of stopped buying uh, cheese at at such a high rate, um, was kind of the introduction of something that we're very familiar with, I think, but milk ads.
0: Oh, the Got milk campaign. Yeah, was
2: oh, to try yeah. to increase demand for milk instead of affecting the supply of it.
0: Yeah, I wonder if they took inspiration from the uh, the Swiss Cheese Union. Maybe. That was kind of their trajectory as well. Yeah,
2: well, I'm sure all mm. these cheese cartels. You know, they trade best practices at some, some big cheese. <laughs> big, <meeting>. cheese <laughs> big cheese convention.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Probably in that vacant cave. I mean, what else are you yeah. going to do in there? Perfect.
2: I am, I imagine I imagine there's a big cheese meeting like like Davos the financial convention yeah. but it's just
1: all like speaking big... of conspiracy theories yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. Spinning some new ones as we go. So just to cap this off, uh, I'll say that in the 1990s, the Swiss cheese union did experience a downfall. Uh, as cartels are liable to do, uh, the organization crumbled like sprints, which from what I've read is a variety of Swiss parmesan like <laughs> cheese, Hey, uh, under allegations of corruption. So between that, their aggressive marketing campaign that constructed a false narrative of Swiss culture purely for profit and the reputation for quashing non-compliance among cheesemakers with mafia-like efficiency, the Swiss cheese union's legacy is reminiscent of their most exalted product. Messy, opaque, and liable to burn you, if you're not careful. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we've made it to the quiz. Since our facts were focused on boring conspiracy theories, I thought it'd be fun to just broaden our scope to conspiracy theories that aren't necessarily boring, but still completely absurd for our quiz. So I'm just going to ask a bunch of questions about documents and conspiracy theories, and we're going to laugh at how bonkers they are. Cool.
2: Sounds good. Cool. I have a funny feeling that she's rigged this game so we can't win.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that set the tone. I can't eh. it. <laughs> We're off. Okay. Question one whose company which was conceived in a tweet complaining about LA traffic has been accused by conspiracy theorists of being a front for preparation against the zombie apocalypse or worse
1: that would be Elon Musk and i believe that this is actually a boring conspiracy <laughs> yes,
2: it is.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it is. Um, And I thought I would take this moment to mention Mm -hmm. that, in fact, there is a conspiracy theory about Elon Musk, and since Elon Musk is the head of the Boring Company, it is therefore a boring conspiracy, Mm -hmm. that in Elon Musk's uh, other company, SpaceX, when they launched the Falcon Heavy 5, one of them, they had this big launch recently, and... Uh, like this big surprise was that uh, he had actually sent up his red Tesla Roadster and then sitting in the front seat was the new SpaceX like spacesuit that they're testing out. And the idea was that they're going to like see how it holds up and like the vacuum of space and all the radiation and stuff. And they have hmm. biosensors that are going to be sending stuff back. But there's this theory that oh, Elon Musk committed the perfect murder and what happened was that he ran over somebody in his car and then sent that car with the dent and whatever evidence there might have been in the murder, as well as the body of the person he killed in the spacesuit into orbit around the sun.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. So. <laughs> the perfect crime. Wow. Question two. What organization was at the receiving end of an attempted lawsuit in 2008 over a conspiracy theory that it was liable to generate a black hole?
1: Well, it's definitely... Well, I can tell you it's the yeah. LHC and CERN, but... Oh, that's right. They were concerned about the LHC when it turned out that they were going to start a black hole, um, but it's it's actually not. And that's... <laughs> for those for of you not up on the
2: initialism, that's the long-haired cheese that they are uh. creating. <laughs> All right, Ron,
1: take it down a notch. <laughs>
2: But for for the real listeners, Large Hadron Collider, right? Yeah.
0: All right, so question three. Per conspiracy theorists, where is the headquarters of the New World Order located? As hinted at by the murals depicting Satanic, Masonic, Illuminati, whatever, you name it, symbols, uh, runways that resemble a swastika, and a giant rearing horse statue out front whose nicknames include Blucifer, Satan's Steed, and the Blue Stallion of Death.
1: Oh, I've heard this before.
0: It's a bit tricky, because if you've been there, mm. then you'd know exactly what I'm talking about.
1: I've, I've heard this fact before. I don't think I'm going to get there, but there's... The runways should like, swastikas. Yeah, I don't know. But this is... So, It's you're looking for a city?
0: It's located in a city, or I guess outside of the city. It's an
1: airport? More specific. It's runways. It has okay, runways. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, the, we're looking for the airport itself. Yeah. Uh,
0: so, I was looking for Denver International Airport. That's right, mm. because it's oh, the, the t- Broncos. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah, was a giant horse statue out front yeah. with blazing red eyes, bright blue horse. Um, I haven't been personally, but the pictures that I've seen do look creepy. But one funny thing that I found as I was looking into this more is that apparently they're leaning into this reputation, and they started putting signs around the airport that say things like, new concessions or new conspiracies. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Question four. Um, in a conspiracy theory that circulated preceding the Brexit vote, what were Brits urged to bring with them to the polls?
2: I don't know. No idea. Oh, nice. Would, would it be like? Would it be something that would enable them to vote, or something
1: that they would need if the vote went poorly?
0: Something that would enable them to vote.
1: Is it an I- voter ID or something?
0: N- uh, no, because that would actually be sensible. <laughs> 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 it's it's it something poor? that would like, enable them to vote indelibly.
2: Oh, was it bring a a Sharpie or a black pen?
0: Essentially, yes. Bring pens. Oh. Um, So it was spread by supporters for the far-right-leaning UK Independence Party um, with the hashtag UsePens hashtag on Twitter out of concern that penciled-in votes would be erased or tampered with. My favorite tweet that I found (laughs) uh, making fun of this was actually from British particle physicist Brian Cox who tweeted, as this was happening, um, I voted in pencil just in case MI5 need to change it later. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Question five. What product's brief recipe change for three months in 1985 led conspiracy theorists to believe that it was actually a marketing ploy to boost sales for the original product? That's got to be Coke.
1: Coke. Yeah. Yeah. New Coke.
0: That's exactly it. They rolled out new Coke with a different recipe and people were outraged.
1: Yeah. When they took away the cocaine, that was (laughs) 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 upsetting.
0: That's how it turned out. All right, question six. What Microsoft creation has been conspiracy theorized to convey anti-Semitic messages and have predicted 9-11?
1: Is it Clippy? <laughs>
2: <laughs> that stupid little
1: paperclip. OK, I take from that response that it's not Clippy, but I was very serious about that. A Microsoft invention that predicted 9-11? So it's from the two, from pre-2000s. Oh, it's the logo. It's not the logo. <laughs>
0: yeah. But you're in. That was a. You're in the right direction face.
1: Oh, it's the screensaver. It's not the screensaver.
2: What's, what's uh, left? Oh, <laughs> um, I don't. We don't know. Was that the start okay. menu? Let's
0: <laughs> go. List every feature. Um, so the answer I was. Minesweeper! Yeah. Like, <laughs> So,
1: clip art Was it
0: word Oh, paint? You're getting closer though. So really hurts <laughs> Well I said clippy. You said, no, but clip art is closer than clippy. You're, you're thinking I'll say you're thinking within the right program so stick to Microsoft Word. Okay
2: okay um, in Word the the autocorrect red underlines <laughs> The spell check <laughs>
0: Think
2: um, about... Word count.
0: Okay I'll give you I'll give you a hint it's a font.
2: Wingdings. Yes. Ah. What?
0: Yep. It's Wingdings. Ah, Thirty um, so seconds. One time of his the dingbat fonts. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like we got
2: that. That was good. Yeah. You, you got it. You made it. <laughs> no, you can edit that to make that the
1: first guess, right? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely gonna do that.
0: So, so just, again, stoking conspiracy theories. About
1: the Great answer, Rob. I'm really impressed. You got that right away. <laughs> you
0: got that in the first good try, job, guys. Thanks, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> hey. <laughs> Uh, so for question seven, who freed people out by saying that the gates of Hades would open on July 27th, 2014?
2: Oh, that was the, the reverend, um, the guy who bought out all the Times Square ads.
0: So I'll give you a hint, who is who is a generous term? It's, it's it is a thing with a name, but it's not an actual person.
2: So Artificial intelligence.
0: Yes. Yeah.
2: Okay. Smarter child. (laughs) Um, Is it Siri? Yes. Okay.
0: Siri, yeah. So apparently for some time before this date, um, iPhone users who asked Siri what July 27th was would get the response, it's Sunday, 27 July 2014, in parentheses, opening gates of Hades. Um, (laughs) Wow. So... (laughs) A little dire. Um, It was chalked up to a glitch uh, in Siri sourcing. Oh, oh yeah? yeah, We made it, so clearly. Um,
1: Well, because they fixed the glitch.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Let's all thank the engineers at Apple. That was a close
0: one. So question eight. Some musically inclined conspiracy theorists believe that David Bowie predicted the rise of what other famous musician, mostly informed by the album art for The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars?
1: So if you can picture
0: that album cover.
1: Well, I can't. I don't know what it looks like.
2: Does he look like Tom Petty? (laughs) Is it a more contemporary artist?
1: Yes.
0: Uh,
2: So like uh, Frank Ocean?
0: (laughs) Uh, Alongside. Really? A little bit earlier.
2: Oh, okay, okay. So like hip-hop R&B from the 2000s?
0: Yeah.
1: All
2: right. R. Kelly.
0: Nope. (laughs) (laughs) But you're you're in the zone.
2: It's not Bismarcky. Oh, sure.
0: (laughs) We don't know. know. Yeah, we really don't know. Okay. (laughs) So I was looking for Kanye West. So the album cover for that album shows Bowie uh, as Ziggy Stardust standing under a sign that reads K West. Like it actually is just K period West. Hmm. So another supposed piece of evidence for this is that the song Five Years, uh, which is about an apocalypse that would happen in five years unless a star man descended from the sky to save everyone, was on that album, which came out in 1972. And Kanye was born in 1977, five years after that.
1: Oh, wow. And it it also included the words, if you ain't no punk, holla, we want prenup. We want prenup. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. It's weird It's weird it's how that speaks for itself. People you know. can come up with that same idea years apart. It's, very, it's fascinating.
0: Nicely done, guys.
1: Woo. I don't know about that. I think... <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I mean, if anything, not being very well-versed in horrifying conspiracy theories is probably something to be proud of.
2: So, <laughs> Maybe we walk away with this one have... feeling good about ourselves. Exactly. I think that's <laughs> That'll
0: totally be a fine. change. <laughs> Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Fax Machine. Uh, Be sure to check us out on our social media accounts at Fax Machine Pod on Twitter and Instagram and also on our Facebook account. And if you like what you hear, please drop us a rating. Subscribe if you haven't subscribed and would like to subscribe. And that's all. We'll see you next time. yeah <laughs> you know i made it through
1: but we never got I'm to the lost until i find you
0: there we go okay yeah. <laughs>